0: Um, hello everybody, uh, welcome to deep macros podcast the future of finance uh, today as our guest we have a ping huang um, he is a professor at the national school of development at uh, peking university. And he was an external member of the monetary policy committee of the people's bank of China until recently, uh, he was also managing director and chief Asia economist Citigroup for many years. Before that, he's taught at the Australian National University and Columbia Business School. And he's also held positions at both the IMF and World Bank. So um, we've got market experience, we have policy experience, uh, and we have a lot of academic experience with the Yiping. Um, he's obviously published widely on the Chinese economy and global affairs. Um, and so um, we really want to welcome Eping to our podcast today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jeff.
0: So let's just start with your overall assessment of the uh, Chinese economy right now. Um, How strong is economic growth right now? Um, And what have been the downside and upside surprises that you've had recently?
1: Well, the economy um, did pretty well last year um, because we controlled the pandemic uh, quite early and the production economic activities were restored. Uh, much earlier than many other countries. And in fact, one good example was our uh, very strong exports. The reason why our exports so strong was because we put um, the pandemic under control and therefore we were able to uh, produce and export. This year, however, our growth is slowing probably faster than most people expected and particularly the third quarter GDP growth. 4.9 percent I think surprised the many people. And uh, there are many reasons why growth has been slowing so quickly. Um, obviously there was this pandemic issue. we still hear some uh, f- from time to time um, a number of new cases including in Beijing and people are very nervous about it, um, even very small number of new cases. so that have some um, impact on economic activity, investor confidence and so on. Um, At the same time, there are a number of other macro factors also contributing. So, for instance, you know, Jeff, um, PPI has been very high and the CPI has been very soft in China. That means a big squeeze on profit margin of many manufacturers in China because most of them are in downstream industries. Um, What surprised me, and certainly was... uh, Uh, the kind of the impact on growth momentum generated by the policies. To some extent, that might be unexpected or unintended. So on the one hand, for instance, the government wanted to maintain robust growth. And that's why at the beginning of the year, they said we continue to maintain proactive fiscal policy. However, we had a fiscal surplus during the first half of the year. That was a big surprise to many people. Um, And on the other hand, um, many investors probably already heard the government is rolling out a lot of structural policies, like trying to to improve the regulation for the big tech sector, trying to control um, the uh, high liabilities and the bubbles in the property sector, cracking down on the education system um, and and so on. There are many policies they're trying to rule out. And my my own view is these are probably all good policies and China needs at this stage of development, including things like uh, controlling the asset bubble and improving energy efficiency, control carbon emission and so on. These are the things that we need to do. The problem is all different government departments are pushing on this agenda too drastically. And that's why they somehow generated downward um, uh, pressure on the growth momentum. So for instance, when the government said we needed to, um, to regulate the big tech sector, people took it like, well, maybe the government don't like these big tech platforms and they don't like these rich people. Um, and so that have a big impact on the sentiment. So I think the question is not whether these are good policies or bad policies, but you need to implement these policies with good policy coordination. Some policies you need to do now, but it's more longer term goal. For instance, um, the carbon emission, carbon neutrality is a goal for us to achieve by 2060. But all authorities are pushing it now. Um, and that causes some short-term effects much bigger than expected. The That's same right. story for um, the big tech sector. I think the regulators' goal is to achieve a more proper orderly expansion of the sector. But when, when, when all authorities are coming out and doing something to the sector, it makes the people to wonder if the government really want to crack it down on the activity itself. So I think it's a combination of the factors, but overall I see growth is slowing faster than expected. We're probably going to see a little bit of turn around during the fourth quarter because we start to see some fine-tuning of the policies.
0: I see. It's a very long list of things to do all at once on the structural side, um, as you mentioned, yeah. and um, one of the Uh, issues that's really been uh, in the media and and markets here has been the um, uh, the attempt to rein in private debt, especially as you mentioned the property sector. Um, Could you talk a little bit more um, about what the background is uh, is of that? Um, There has been a lot of debt growth. um, The property has been an important part of the economy. Um, Banks are very extended to property. Um, Defaults have been rare. Uh, People have said this creates moral hazard. The government has tried many times to get control of this. And each time with, I'd say, moderate, some success, but some some incomplete. Could you um, tell us uh, how you think this is going to play out?
1: Um, Well, I do think the high leverage ratio is an issue um, that China is facing. But before I get into um, the discussion, I'd like to point out the two things. I think the leverage ratio in China is normal in some sense, because China had like a bank dominated uh, financial system. So the li- leverage ratio would be high by definition. Jeff, you spent lots of time working on Japan. It's the same story for Japan. When you have a bank dominated financial system, you have very high leverage ratios. That's the bottom line. The second thing I think we also need to keep in mind is, well, the Chinese government and SOEs, they have lots of liabilities. That is a source of concern. But at the same time, you also know this money, will, most of the money was spent on some kind of investment. So whether infrastructure, production capacity, and so on, you have some kind of assets there. Now, they might not be very efficient, worthwhile and so on, but you do have a balance sheet which has both asset and liability. These are the two things I think we need to keep in mind when we say China's leverage ratio is very high. China started to deal with the high leverage ratio in 2016. The government actually pushed out a policy called the deleveraging policy. Um, which worked to some extent, but it also had some unintended results, meaning when um, all parties trying to control the leverage ratio, they had an un- disproportionate squeeze on the private sector, and that's why there was a big uh, 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 cry from the private sector about the deteriorating financing condition and so on, but at that time, the non-financial leverages were about 240% of GDP, and we were quite worried. In the following years, we had some improvement, and I think the um, the corporate leverage uh, actually slowed down or declined a bit, but the household leverage increased, and partly fueled by um, the mortgage loans and so on. But especially after last year's pandemic, at the end of last year, our uh, non-financial leverage became 280% of GDP, which is like at least the 40 percentage point higher than what was the case five years ago. Um, so that was kind of the broader picture. And last year, well, partly I think it's also understandable why leverage ratio jumped in the last year, because when the government tried to do everything, anything they could to stabilize the economy, one of the main tools was to encourage banks to lend more money, especially to the SMEs. In fact, the SME lending jumped by 30% last year when the economy was almost like stagnant. That was to some extent a policy intended result because we needed to protect the SMEs to make sure the economy is stable, uh, growth is stable, jobs is stable, and if they are alive, then after you control the pandemic, economic recovery will be possible. If all these SMEs die during pandemic, then it will become much more difficult. So that's understandable policy, but the result is the leverage ratio is very high. So this is why I think the government start to worry about a high leverage ratio. And they look around the economy, uh, a number of areas where they probably worries. Number one, local government liabilities, so so by local government, local investment vehicles, and also local SOEs. That's one area I think is of a bigger concern. The other area is the property sector. Uh, Property sector leverage ratio is also quite high, Um, the developers, the mortgages, and so on. So the government tried to either stabilize or control or slow down the growth of the leverage ratio, but uh, it is very difficult, um, as 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 you, I'm sure you would agree. Uh, authority is always a hope, a soft landing, but a soft landing is very difficult to come by. And uh, one one thing that I, I think that the policymakers are trying to um trying to achieve is that uh, um they trying to let some followings uh, l- l- or debt liabilities to default if they have to, because that's the only way of improving the quality of leverage. But it is it is very difficult. At the end of 2019, we had some problems of small banks and we had problems of local uh, SOE debt and so on. So the overall principle offered by the authority is that maybe we should just let some of the products, some of the company um, to default or to uh, bankrupt, because that's the only way to improve that market discipline. But whenever these things happen, um, the authorities would, would, would become worried again, because you don't know where is the dividing line between like just a, a, a failure of some products and or systemic risk. That's why the authorities are really stuck in, uh, um, in, in a very difficult situation.
0: Yeah, I think that that's common in any country. <clears throat> um, it's very difficult True. to know how far to push. Um, right. Normally, what happens is you kind of want to give uh, some sort of uh, uh, a soft landing, as you mentioned, with very supportive right. macro policy. Um, so um, and um, you know, it seems like, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of fiscal uh, uh, action. Um, one thing that's very interesting is that the RMB itself is quite strong um, this year, um, even though the economy is weakening. And in previous periods, um, when these policies have been implemented, sometimes there's been some capital outflows and uh, weakness of the currency. Um, is this really different? Uh, is it is it important uh, that the RMB stays strong to kind of make sure that enough capital stays domestically to kind of keep financial conditions from tightening too much as the deleveraging process proceeds?
1: Of course, I, I think it's, it's very important. Although I don't know, um, a strong currency is good or bad for the economy at the moment, because we're talking about the trader channel and the financing channel. Hmm. If we're talking about the trader channel, probably a weaker currency uh, would be better. Um, Jeff, as you know, most East Asian um, authorities always prefer a weaker currency, um, including the Japanese government. However, I think the Chinese authorities now looking at this issue um, from a much more uh, complex uh, perspective, because if the currency weakens in the short term, the impact on export performance would probably be limited at the moment. It's not determined by competitiveness of Chinese exports. It's more constrained by demand and the supply by other countries. So I think the currency probably has a very small role to play in determining the export of the Chinese uh, uh, economy. But at the same time, it would have some impact on, for instance, the financial flows whether or not we'll continue to be able to keep all these capital at home, I think the currency would still have some rule going forward. And this is why I'm quite worried going forward, if the Fed really start to tighten and raise interest rates, what would the impact that we're going to see? I don't know exactly. If you look at what happened in, uh, for in the second half of 2015, um, in August, um, you might recall, and you might not recall, PBOC implemented a, a step of reform of the central parity of the exchange rate on the 11th of August. But there was a roughly a two percent de- 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 devaluation on the day, which triggered a wide uh, a wave of um, expectation for currency depreciation and a capital outflow. But the broader background was the Fed was about to tighten. And RB was already under pressure to, to depreciate. But the PBOC resisted for some time. And when, so in August, when the new reform was implemented, everybody thought, well, maybe this is the time PBOC would let it go. So that's why capital outflow and, and expectation for depreciation suddenly surged. This time is probably not as bad. But I think that the similar things that we should we should expect. And on the one hand, as you said, RMB has been very strong at the moment. Um, there might be many reasons. The Chinese growth, while slowing, is probably is still very strong and this year. Regardless, whatever we do during the first quarter, the growth would definitely be above six percent. Um, somebody calculated the number. If we achieve zero percent growth during the first quarter annual growth would still be 6%. If we do a little bit above 3%, we still will be able to achieve like annual growth of about 8% or above. That's an IMF number. So this year's growth is probably okay now. The question is what will happen next year? But on the the RMB, I think one very important factor is is contributing to it is our current account, surplus is still very strong. Unexpectedly, to some extent, because of the pandemic, our trade surplus basically doubled, but our service trade uh, 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 deficit almost halved because people can't go out, um, and that's why our spending was re- re- reduced. So that's why the current account position is very strong at the moment. Uh, but you might also speculate that um, about the uh, sustainability of this current account position. Right.
0: So um, you raised a couple interesting points there. Um, first, um, you know, going back to the two thousand fifteen um, experience, and at that time the Fed was going to be hiking, and um, we're maybe getting to a similar point here, where inflation in the U.S. is quite high, uh, mm. pretty high globally. Um, in China, CPI inflation, at least, is still quite low. I think it's still yes. in the one percent range. One point three was the last print, um, yeah. versus six point two uh, in the U.S. So um, mm. and um, so, if the Fed has to hike uh, has to hike rates more aggressively than they have been saying, is this potentially going to um, affect the capital flows this time in the same way?
1: Well, it would have some the, the similar impact um, in the same direction, but it doesn't necessarily have to have the same impact in magnitude because. What happened was in mid-2015, as um, I mentioned earlier, the currency was already under pressure to depreciate for some time. So the the change um, in August, the policy change in August was just to confirm that maybe this should depreciate and exaggerated the expectation of um, the depreciation. This time around, I don't think, I I think the misalignment in the exchange rate is much, much uh, limited. So that's why there might be similar pressure for um, the currency, but I don't expect the bigger moves like we saw last time. At the same time, I think if it really depends on what, I mean, the exchange rate has been pretty flexible. I'm sure you'll watch it very closely. PBOC has not been like regularly intervening in the FX market for some time. Uh, they, 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 not, they didn't say that, that they're not going to intervene um, in any case, but the, for some time they have they're leaving uh, they've been leaving the market alone for some time, which means the exchange rate is being uh, adjusting. Um, what I think will be important is really China is a large country. So there are many other factors in, in addition to the so-called interest rate differential between China and the US. That still is a very important point. But I think overall, it really depends on what happens in the macro economy domestically. If the economy is really strong um, and the financial system is stable, we gradually have a two way opening of the financial system and so on. Then um, I think the in- in inflows will continue to be strong. We don't have to worry too much about it. The main constraint, I think it will a, a rapid hiking of the by the Fed would uh, impose on China is on uh, the flexibility of PBOC's monetary policy. I.e., if PBOC still want to like a lower interest rate to boost growth, I think the room would become increasingly more limited. Okay. But of, of course, I think nobody can be sure uh, exactly what would happen. I think, I mean, as we discussed earlier, when the Fed tightens monetary policy, we should expect to see depreciation of the currency, outflow of the capital, and a possible even decline of asset prices in most developing countries. And I think China would not be an exception. I'm just not expecting devastating consequences for China. Okay,
0: okay. no, that's that's good. I remember that those days very well. Um,
1: Bye.
0: I, um, I wanted to pick up on your comment on the tech sector, which you alluded to. Um, It's been a fairly uh, competitive uh, or innovative sector in that, uh, especially payments, um, really global leader in payments, um, social media, like, for example, um, everything that ByteDance does. And um, it's kind of a given that China uh, is needing new sources of productivity growth and innovation. um, It was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. Um, Maybe you could tell us what is your outlook for the tech sector um, Mm. in the new environment?
1: Well, Jeff, I think the first thing to distinguish is big tech versus a hard tech. So big tech companies have lots of innovations and so on in terms of technology um, and so on. Um, did, as you said, they did, 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 did brilliant things to the Chinese economy. Like uh, a lot of things that we enjoy in China probably are more advanced than those in many other countries. If you look at the big tech uh, industry as a whole, the real leader in the world is really China and and, and the US. US is probably a much bigger player, but China is also doing pretty well. But the other other thing which is also important um, is the so-called hard tech, um, like the real technology, the chips, electrical cars and so on. So there is a question, Um, Even if the authorities still want these innovation in the tech sector, does the authorities prefer more big tech innovation or hard tech innovation? I think that's something um, it would be interesting to keep in mind. What we are finding at the moment is um, during the conflict between China and the US economic conflict, one thing we are seeing is the US is trying to limit or restrict supply of these hard tech products to China. So maybe the authorities have an incentive to encourage a lot more hard tech innovation. Big tech innovation is also important, but just in relative terms, maybe the priority is more uh, hard tech um, uh, innovation. That's the first point I would make. The second point um, I also want to make is that Big tech innovation is very important. And the, the fact that China is leading alongside the US of global development is to some extent a surprise to many people in China. Um, we're still very much behind the, the global technological frontier, but many of these companies did it. And in fact, especially in areas of so called financial inclusion. Um, it really made a huge contribution, so that is an all good thing. Um, they, they improve um, the so-called user experience, they improve efficiency, they increase the scale of service, they reduce cost, they limit contact, um, and they sometimes even control risk, so these are all good. But it's also true that during the past years, um, the number of complaints about these industries rising. Um, whether they're really supporting innovation in the long run. Um, It's an open question. They are innovative for sure, but in in some areas, they're also probably limiting innovation by some other companies like the so-called killer acquisition. That's a very common practice. Is it good or not? So for instance, in some cases, they're using their market power to limit uh, or to restrict the competition. So the so-called exclusion of um, the, the, the competitors from um, the market and so on. There's also a big question about the bigger data and algorithms, algorithm. Um, so the so-called discriminatory pricing and so on. So these are the issues that start to have problems um, in the Chinese society. We are seeing more complaints. My reading is that um, we didn't have a proper regulatory framework for this sector, and what the authorities is trying to do is to bring together um, a, a, a comprehensive set of regulatory policy framework, the ultimate goal is to ensure uh, orderly development in this, in this sector. And it's probably by trying to uh, correcting some behaviors of the platform uh, companies. So, so so, I guess bottom line is, it's not that the government doesn't like this sector um, uh, uh, anymore, but I think that they want to make sure that this sector develops in a healthy way. Um, and uh, one particular thing I think we, we, we needed to keep in mind is uh, this is something we we're studying at the platform economy at the moment. We, we are studying the US experience. Now my, 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 my summary of the US experience might not be accurate, but my reading is antitrust policy becomes more active when the following happens. When the ec- economic growth is slowing, when the concentration ratio of the industries increase and when income distribution is very unequal. So you look at what happened at the end of the 18th century in the U.S. and you look at now in the U.S. this is a time when big companies emerge when you see growth continue to slow but the income distribution is not very favorable. That's why I guess the public sentiment again toward these big companies just turned negative. I suspect that the same is happening in China.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting parallel. Then um, what about blockchain? Uh, is there a big difference um, in the government's eyes between crypto per se and more general blockchain um, applications? And hmm. how do you see that going forward?
1: Well, the Chinese authorities do not like the cryptocurrencies, uh, end of story. Um, and I think that that's uh, there's a good reason um, uh, for it because as you know, we have a financial system not fully liberalized. So we still have some kind of regulations. By the way, all of my study research shows that while sometimes the policy intervention is problematic But in the Chinese case, in many cases, some of these distortions actually worked because before your financial system, um, market mechanism, regulatory framework uh, become well developed, just liberalizing it prematurely would only invite disasters. So this is why I think there are good reasons why we're moving gradually, and and this is good. So cryptocurrency comes to this story for the same reason. Because it's decentralized, because it's anonymous, and if you can trade and hold cryptocurrency in China, it would cause a lot of problems. So for instance, we still have some kind of um, controls over the cross-border capital flow. blocked uh, the, the, the cryptocurrencies would simply make all these ineffective. That's why they don't like it. We also needed to implement more serious anti-money laundering policies, anti-corruption policies, and so on. So I think the authorities made a decision a few years ago that this would not do good to China's financial stability. They simply banned the trading of um, the, um, the cryptocurrencies and, and stop the ICOs um, and, and so on. So that is the reason why um, that happened. And I, I actually, as a financial expert, I supported that policy because if you don't have good ways of dealing with the potential problems, then it might be better um, just not to let it happen for now. You can't really completely prohibit holding or trading of the activities, but you can reduce it Quite um, significantly, but the government is supporting um, the use of the blockchain technology in many areas. So, for instance, in one area that is happening at the moment is called the digital supply chain finance, meaning the, the 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 big the big tech companies can support the SMEs if you plug it in into a supply chain then they can follow you, monitoring you, and so on. The so-called integration of four flows. The flow of goods, the flow of of commercial activities, the flow of funds, and the flow of information. When these four flows are integrated, it just makes it possible for um, the big tech companies or for the financial institutions to monitor the risk, to control the risk, then they're able to provide the funding to you. Um, but ensure the integration of all these um, four flows and make sure they're all accurate numbers because if you don't have a good technology and people might use the same thing, fake products and so on. There are lots of problems in the traditional digital, uh, the traditional supply chain finance. Um, So blockchain technology is very useful here. Just you can't Change um, the, the, the data on the system um, and so on. That's very useful. But on the other hand, for instance, um, Jeff, as you probably know, PBOC is quickly pushing out uh, um, the central bank digital currency, what we call ECNY. Um, and they're not using um, the blockchain technology. Initially, they were open minded, but I think uh, at this stage, um, they probably realize using blockchain technology is probably not the best solution. Um, and the main reason, as you know, is if you're designing a central bank digital currency, you you don't want to lose control and monitoring capability by the central bank. So this is why I think some other technology is might be more- okay.
0: okay, excellent. Let me move back to the real economy, so to speak. And I wanted to ask about China and, and how it's relating to the global economy a little bit. Um, I mean, we've had trade wars, uh, COVID, um, U.S. restrictions on Chinese company activities and listings in the U.S., uh, and then, of course, now we have these supply chain uh, problems, but just like a couple numbers that are really astounding, the first is that um, China's total trade is really off the charts. I added up exports and imports. Um, Together, and it's obviously at a record high. I believe that the total level is about 25% higher than it was before the pandemic, which is extraordinary. Mm. Um, Trade with the U.S. is at a record high. Um, Foreign inflows into Chinese fixed income assets, record high. Um, equities are actually close to record high, Um, foreign inflows into Chinese equities are to record high, and outflows are pretty big too. I mean, this doesn't seem at all like what we were expecting a couple years ago when the news was so bad. So I guess the question is simple. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, are we really missing the story by focusing too much on um, the restrictions, the, the negative uh, the rhetoric and, and things like that, because it just seems like there's a huge amount of activity that's uh, taking place.
1: Uh, I, th- I mean, the only thing I would say is, Jeff, I think uh, the Chinese economy is uh, very resilient. Um, and uh, because it's a transitional economy, and we adopt the so-called gradual reform approach, you can always find the problems in the policies as an economist, I mean, the, one, the, the way I say it is, at every point of the time, when I look at the Chinese policy, I always criticize it. But what I think is, makes me uh, more uh, positive about the policies, you find it's gradually moving ahead. So there's an older Chinese saying, we're not afraid of moving slowly. We are, we are afraid of standing still. So what you find that the Chinese economy has been liberalized to this extent, there is a lot of resilience in the economy itself. What happened as you mentioned during the past year and so on, I think part, I think much of this, um, the, the, the strength of the Chinese economy was caused by some temporary factors. So for instance, the pandemic was just one very important reason. Without the pandemic, I don't think China's trade sector would be that strong. But that also reminds us that we should be, we should expect some normalization going forward if the rest of the world really start to control um, the pandemic and what will happen to the Chinese economy one thing that is always uh, 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 worrying me is that consumption is still too weak. Mm -hmm. So that was the story for a very long time. We're always very strong in production, export, investment, but consumption was relatively weak. Now that could cause a problem at least, for instance, access capacity. But what what happened though, was certainly during the first three decades of China's reform, um, until before the global financial crisis, China invest a lot, produced a lot, and then we export a lot, mostly to the U.S. and many other markets. So access capacity problem was controlled, but the consumption was relatively weak. I think going forward, this becomes the biggest challenge for China's growth sustainability. I don't think we can rely on continuation of that kind of export growth, whether um, the global economy is already growing at a much slower pace, or because the global trading system is just less, uh, less open um, today. So this is why the Chinese authorities now emphasizing the so-called the, the great domestic economic circulation. We need a domestic demand to drive growth. That's something we need to change going forward. But of course, that does not necessarily mean we do not want to like maintain the connections, collaborations with the outside world, but just in relative terms, domestic demand and supply becomes a much bigger story in China, driving Chinese uh, growth. Um, what you mentioned after um, the, the restrictions the US imposed and so on, at, uh, on, on Chinese economic activities um, and, and so on, but we're still growing. I think a part of the reason is, as I said, it is very resilient. You have a very lively dynamic private sector that continuously pushing ahead. The big tech company is just one good example. I mean, I, I was surprised to see that for China as a developing country, we're already number two. Absolute number two in terms of big tech uh, uh, business globally. It's a very innovative. They're not a cutting edge technology, but they were able to apply these technologies to this big market and achieve a commercial, financial, and a commercial success. That's um, really the resilience. The second thing I think is also very important is China is a large country. So we have some room to mitigate the negative consequences of some external pressure. But, but of course, it's, it is negative then it is negative. So we needed to find ways to uh, work around. One thing that in the end, um, I think the good thing with um, the, 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 the large Chinese market is that, as I mentioned, the one big lagging factor in driving Chinese growth at the moment is consumer spending. Um, and that for many different reasons. And the number one reason is income distribution is very unequal. <clears throat> this is why it's not good for aggregate consumer demand. Number two, the social security system is still not well-developed and it's much better today but not very well-developed. That's why um, the low-income households um, had a bigger problem during the pandemic time because Number one, their income was hardly hit. And number two, they didn't have the same kind of um, the the, the social security protection. Um, And and that's why the low-income household spending was very weak. In fact, for some households, the saving ratio actually increased as their income declined because you don't know what is going to happen in the future. Then the only way to protect yourself from future uncertainty is to save more money. Um, and the number three is the urbanization rate is still relatively low. Um, our per capita uh, consumption in urban areas left roughly two, three times of the per capita consumption in the rural areas. So there are many things we can still do to improve consumption, but I'm relatively pessimistic or not, not upbeat about consumption in the near term, but I'm actually quite upbeat about the consumption in the medium to longer term because when 1.4 billion people start to spend money on consumer spending. I think it's a very big story. China's retail sales t- this year is already bigger than that in the U.S. Right. And if our growth rate is still at least twice of the U.S. consumer spending, then Jeff, this is would probably become the most exciting uh, consumer uh, market um, and globally. Um, But, of course, we have some gaps to to, to fill. But this is why I think this is something we really need to focus on. If China can really build the most vibrant and probably the largest consumer market, then I don't worry too much about the shifting supply chain at all. Um, Even though with the stories the pressures about shifting away the supply chain and so on, the real change um, is quite limited,
0: okay, so let me just close um, by going back to where we started, uh, which was about surprises uh, in the kind of more near term um, you know what 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 in the recent past um, every now and then there's uh, in the Western media and markets especially people get really bearish um, for different <clears throat> reasons so what, but but still, China has managed through uh, most of these crises. What is the one or two or three things that people have gotten wrong um, about China, you know, uh, and, and how it's been able to deal with these problems?
1: Well, I, I'll just give you one reason, um, one factor: um, this high leverage ratio issue. Leverage ratio high is is a problematic, but look at the property sector, for instance, this year, we had a big problem with um, the property developers. Um, Evergrande is a story everybody talked about. And then suddenly realized maybe everybody had a problem. And that's why um, the investors worldwide became concerned about the situation. What happened? I think, again, it went back to the point I made earlier on the policy implementation and coordination was less than satisfactory. Last year, when the economy came out of the um, pandemic, um, the main driver to growth was really exports and some investment, and some investment including property investment. Um, The property market actually boomed last year. But as you probably know, the authorities already were worried about the potential bubble in the property market, and high leverage ratios and so on. Then they introduced some new measures. Um, One measure they they, they took was in August last year, defined the so-called three red lines. Um, Essentially, these are the lines for leverage ratio by the property developers, meaning you can't go too high. um, And there is a limit we should watch. If you go above that, then the risk is high. That is a reasonable policy um, and a good policy, I thought. The problem was when these three red lines implemented, most financial institutions responded to that measure. And some banks actually regarded as lending to property developers as problematic loans. They not only stopped the lending to these property developers, they also want to take back the money they already lent to um, the property developers. And then it's not easy and difficult to imagine. Even if you have good property developers, you would run into financial problems because you won't be able to sustain, right? So Evergrande was probably one of the outstanding ones. Um, but I think the the, the the big drama this year was really more caused by policy and its implementation. So this is why at the end of, of September, um, Governor Egon called a meeting of all these financial institutions, basically telling them this is not the way you should implement the policy. You should continue to support these property developers, because the way you're doing it is directly um, causing a, a financial crisis. And I think the situation is already turning around. So there is a big question, something we needed to, to learn and to improve on how to Smoothly implement some good policies without causing. Uh, in order to avoid a financial crisis, but you don't implement the policies to directly trigger financial crisis. That's something we need to learn. But uh, one thing I think I, I I want to point out, just the last point is, sometimes I think uh, uh, global international investors become too worried when they see these high leverage ratio problems because that reminded them of many like debt crisis countries. In China, Jeff, I think it's not too difficult to convince you. It's a little bit like Japan. You have lots of liabilities. The worst, but you also know most of these liabilities like uh, related to one way or the other, the government. And also most of the money coming through the banks, the banks, most of them owned by the, the government. So number one, we're not going to see immediate collapse of confidence in the market. And this is why I think the probability of the so-called imminent Minsky moment is very low. Number two, even if you have that default and the people talking about Evergrande and so on, even if that crisis happened, we're not going to easily see the so-called counterparty risks because the banks, they're all relatively transparent with each other and they all owned by one bigger owner. So I think the biggest risk of the high leverage ratio is declining efficiency and the declining um, investment returns, not a collapse of um, the debt market. And, And I always say the worst case scenario is gross stagnation like what Japan experienced not a big debt crisis like the U.S. experienced during the subprime crisis.
0: Okay, well, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for all your insights um, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you. Okay.
0: The content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this material constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Deep Macro Incorporated or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in this or in any other jurisdiction in which such solicitation or offer would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. All content is information of a general nature and does not addressed the circumstances of any particular individual or entity. None of the information constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any of the information constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto. There are risks associated with investing. Loss of principal is possible. Some high-risk investments may use leverage, which will accentuate gains and losses of securities or firms past investment performance does not a guarantee a predictor of future investment performance.